there are plenty of important deaths of important people in history. For example, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand is considered the spark that led to the First World War. And then you have Hitler's self-inflicted death uh, that likely ensured the immediate and unconditional surrender of the German troops during the Second World War. Sometimes, though, a death is important not so much for its impact on history, but for its impact on us personally. I think of the tragic deaths of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Richardson, who seem to have had a huge impact on Don McLean, as he calls their, the day they died as the day the music died, and his song, American Pie. But, of course, many of us have been impacted more deeply by the loss of a loved one. The death of someone we love I mean, can have an, a massive impact on our lives. It can change us dramatically forever. I want you to consider the impact that a certain death had on a, a young North African woman named Vivia Perpetua in the early 200s. Perpetua was about 22 years old when she found herself at a face-off with the Roman authorities. She was from a wealthy, important family, and surprisingly for the time, she was well-educated. She had much going for her. But there was one very big problem. She was a Christian. And the Roman emperor at the time, Septimus Severus, believed that Christianity was a problem. Perpetua had recently given birth to a son who was still breastfeeding at the time of her arrest and imprisonment. Now, she was able to make arrangements so that she could still feed her son while she was in prison, but she was, she was extremely anxious about her son. Perpetua's father was not a Christian, and he put a great deal of pressure on Perpetua to, to just give in, to deny her faith. He would plead with her for his own sake and then for the sake of his, her mother and her brothers, and especially for the sake of her infant son. But Perpetua, at one moment, she, she pointed to some vessel around them, some, some household item, and she said to her father, can it be called by any other name than what it is? And when he said no, she said, neither can I call myself anything else than what I am, a Christian. She eventually stood before the North African Roman procurator, Hilarianus, and her father was there at the trial with her infant son. And he was, again, pleading with her to recant. And Hilarianus said, spare the gray hairs of your father. Spare the infancy of your boy. Offer sacrifice for the well-being of the emperors. Perpetua, she stood firm and she said, I will not do so. He asked her, are you a Christian? She said, I am a Christian. Hilarianus had one last attempt to try to change her mind. He had her father beaten in front of her. When that wouldn't work, when she wouldn't recant, he sentenced her to be killed in the arena. On the day of her execution, Perpetua, along with some other Christians, she went out and she was to be killed by wild beasts. And she and another Christian named Felicitas, a slave, they were both attacked by a wild cow. And they were both knocked to the ground. Now, Perpetua, she got up and she kind of tried to adjust her clothing so that she would remain modest. And then she walked over to Felicitas. This, this noble woman walked over to a slave. She helped up her sister in Christ and stood by her. 
Eventually, these animals took too long. They were abusing these Christians, but they, they weren't killing them quick enough for the crowd. And so they were lined up, and one by one, the sword was used to finish them off. And the account even says that Perpetua had to comfort the young gladiator who didn't really want to, to do this to her. So what do, we, what do we do with someone like that? What do you make of a wealthy, comfortable 22-year-old woman willing to give up everything simply to maintain that she was a Christian? What would you make of a, a young mother willing to give up her child to entrust this child to her family? What would explain these horrible, tragic deaths? The most important death of all time. That's what explains this tragedy. See, of all the deaths of history, there's only one that you can call the most important, the most significant death of all time. And that's the death of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So what we want to do is, in response to the passage, is one, we want to understand why Perpetua would respond the way that she did. And two, we want to be willing to do the same. Now, I know that's a tall order. But in the power of the Holy Spirit and, and by his powerful word, we can do that. So you could turn to Matthew 27, if you're not already there. And again, we're going to look at verses 32 through 54. And I see... Four sections really in this passage that vacillate between what's happening to Jesus and how people respond to what's happened to him. So we'll see the Son of God's crucifixion and followed by the response to that crucifixion. And then we'll look at the Son of God's death and the response to his death. And I'm using Son of God here because it's, kind of, it's the key title to this section. You find it in verses 40 and 43, and then you find it as the section closes in verse 54. So let's look, first of all, at the Son of God's crucifixion, which we see in verses 32 through 38. These soldiers that are leading Jesus to his execution, we know that they're not compassionate. We've, we've seen that they're not compassionate. The way that they've treated Jesus, they mocked him. They created that mock coronation. They crammed a, a, a thorny crown on his head, and then they took uh, they spit on him and, and took a stick and beat him with it. Repeatedly. So what they do here at the beginning of this, this is not compassion on their part. What appears to be the case is they recognize that they've done too much. They've taken things too far with Jesus, and they're afraid that he might die before he reaches crucifixion, which they didn't want to take place. And so... They just conscripted someone from the crowd to carry this beam, which normally the condemned person had to carry all the way to their place of execution. So when you think about what Jesus had experienced up to this point, I mean, he had a grief-stricken, sleepless night before this. And then he was arrested. And then the Jewish leaders beat him. And then he faced the Romans, and he had this Roman scourging, followed by these Roman soldiers who then continued to mistreat him and beat him some more. And so you can understand the problem. We can understand why Jesus was, un uh, was unable to do this. I mean, who is going to be able to carry 
a 40 to 50 pound beam after that treatment. Now, Simon was likely Jewish based on his name, but he's living in this town of Cyrene in North Africa. So he either moved from Cyrene to Jerusalem or he's there on a pilgrimage because of the Passover. But either way, the Romans, they were allowed to force someone to do things for them. They could force someone to build a road or to construct a building. They could force someone to carry something for them for up to a mile. And so they made Simon carry Jesus' crossbeam to a place called Golgotha in Aramaic. It means skull. It's transliterated into Greek, and it sounds from that transliteration more like Golgotha. But for the Greek speakers reading Matthew, Matthew translates that. It's, it means place of a skull. The Latin word for Skull is Calvaria, where we get Calvary from. So we don't know where it was. There's lots of opinions on where we think they think that this is found in Jerusalem. But we can say this, that from Roman and Jewish requirements, it had to have been outside the city walls. And based on the fact that the Romans are doing this in order to scare anyone away from, from rebelling against them, it must have been a very public place, likely along the road, likely along a highway. So before Jesus is nailed to the cross, Matthew tells us that someone, likely a soldier, offered Jesus wine to drink, but it was mixed with gall. Gall is a bitter herb, and it can even be poisonous. So again, recall that these these soldiers, they're not compassionate. So you can imagine these guys that are walking, burdened trek, and, and they reach this point, they have got to be thirsty. And so these soldiers, they hand them something to drink. But as one commentator put it, it was like, handing somebody something saying it's lemonade and it's really lemon juice. So this was not compassion. This was just yet more torture. And so when Jesus took a sip, he recognized what it was. He understood what they were doing and he refused to drink it. Now, Matthew includes that because it's, it's a subtle way for him to demonstrate that Jesus is actually fulfilling what took place in David's life. This is a subtle allusion to the Psalms of David. Psalm 69.21 mentions giving gall to David. So what Jesus is doing, what Matthew's pointing out, Jesus is following in the footsteps of his ancestor. And what David experienced, the reason why God allowed his king to, be, to suffer the way that David did was because he was picturing something that was going to happen in the future. So Jesus is now fulfilling that suffering that David experienced. So Matthew then briefly refers to the crucifixion. He doesn't say much about the actual crucifixion at the beginning of verse 35. He doesn't explain it. Most likely he didn't have to explain it. Everybody knew what crucifixion was. People didn't even want to talk about it. But we don't really know it very well. We've seen pictures, but I won't go into it very much. But the person being crucified would have been attached in some way to that crossbeam either by rope or, in Jesus' case, nailed to that crossbeam, which would then be raised onto the pole and attached. And then they would raise it just high enough that his feet would be off the ground, and they took his legs, they straddled them around that pole, and nailed one ankle and the other into each side of the pole. That was done, again, really to torture this person to death. These these victims, they're, they're dying, and since they're dying, their clothing isn't going to be needed, and so the the soldiers are allowed to take their clothing. So that's what 
You see next. They had returned Jesus' clothing so that they could get him to the, the place of execution. But then once he was there, they, took, they removed his clothing again. And now it says that they divided his garments among them by casting lots. They were gambling and the prize was Jesus' clothing. But again, this is worded the way that it is. It actually happened, but Matthew words it this way specifically because he's drawing attention to yet another psalm, this time Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 18 says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, the goal of crucifixion was to inflict a long, drawn-out, painful death. Romans, again, what they're trying to do is they're trying to strike fear into anyone who would rebel against them. So, during this long process, Matthew says the soldiers sat down and kept watch over Jesus. You can imagine in the case of insurrection, which is what these other two were involved in, the soldiers would be there to make sure nobody was going to try to rescue the person from the cross. So they're there to stand guard. But Matthew tells us that, not as just some random detail, he wants us to recognize that these soldiers, they're now able to see, observe what happens. And we're going to see how they respond at the very end. Again, crucifixion, it is a deterrent against crime. So what crime are they trying to deter with Jesus' death? Well, Pilate knew, we saw this last week, Pilate knew that he was being used by these Jewish leaders to get rid of Jesus. He knew that Jesus hadn't actually done anything that Romans would consider a crime, but he had given in. And so he uses that opportunity to try to scare other people by this, these charges that he posts on the cross. Jesus' charges are, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. He's saying, this is what you get if you want to try to be a king. Matthew, though, is including that because, really, though Pilate and the Romans, they're being sarcastic in saying that, it's true. This is what we're observing. We're observing the king being crucified. Matthew then ends with this detail in verse 38. He's Notice that two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. And I mentioned last week, robbers is probably not the best translation. It's just the traditional one. And so likely the best way to describe them is insurrectionists. They had been involved in an uprising, and they were likely uh, Barabbas' partners. Barabbas is now being replaced by Jesus, but they still had to pay for that crime. But I want you to think about, just in looking at what has happened, think about what Matthew hasn't done. Matthew doesn't describe the crucifixion in great detail. He's not trying to traumatize people into the kingdom. He's not trying to traumatize them so that they they feel really, really bad enough to say, well, okay, sure, I'll, I'll believe in Jesus. That's not what Matthew's trying to do. Matthew wants us to see the truth about what happened to Jesus. And it's not wrong to be emotional When you love Jesus, when you know what he's done for you, that's not wrong to be emotional, but don't be merely emotional. Matthew's trying to tell us the truth, so he wants us to understand how significant this is. This is the crucifixion of the Son of God. Let's look at the response to his crucifixion in verses 39 through 44. Matthew shows us three different groups who respond to this. And the first is in verses 39 And 40, those who are passing by, again, this is probably along the highway, and so those who are passing by this, they 
mocked Jesus. Matthew says they derided him, wagging their heads. Again, hundreds of years earlier, David had written down in Psalm 22, 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Jesus is suffering in the same way and even to a greater degree than his forefather David had. He's bringing David's suffering to its fulfillment, to what it was pointing to. Now, how do they mock him? They say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You are the son of God. Come down from the cross. We, we heard that accusation back in chapter 26 with the trial of the Jewish leaders. They, they found two witnesses who said that Jesus had said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Of course, that's not really what Jesus said. What Jesus had said in Matthew, Matthew 12, 6, is something greater than the temple was here. And Jesus was referring to the fact that God's presence by means of him, by he was God in human flesh, that was more significant than the temple. So Jesus helps us understand what's going on to him. Matthew is helping us understand that. What they say here, this accusation, destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, it's actually pointing to what was happening. What Jesus had actually said was pointing to the fact that they were going to destroy him, his body, which was a greater temple. But in three days, he would rise from that destruction. And the fact is that they're saying, oh, come down from the cross, save yourself, and, and you'll prove that you're the son of God. That's not how he would prove he was the son of God. Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, as Paul puts it in Romans 1.4. So again, what Matthew is doing when, when he records this mocking that's taking place, He's helping us to think through, why is Jesus dying? And he does that with the next group of mockers in verses 41 and 42. Next group is the chief priests, the scribes and elders. And they were saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. So they're sarcastically saying, he's the king of Israel. They didn't mean it. But again, Matthew includes that statement because it's true. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. That, that kingdom that he promised would come in the end and rule over all nations. Jesus was that king. And Matthew actually went to great lengths throughout his gospel to show that. Matthew was showing through Jesus healing the sick, casting out demons, even raising the dead, that Jesus wielded the, the authority of God's kingdom. So, if that's true, why was the king dying? And Matthew has already told us the answer to that. He told us from the start of his gospel. He said with the angels, the angels' announcement to, to, about Jesus when he was born, that he didn't come to save his people from their subjugation to Rome. Matthew 1, 21, the angel announced this, that Jesus will save his people from their sins. So what these chief priests, these rulers are doing, these Jewish leaders are doing, in saying he saved others, they're pointing to his miraculous works. But they're horribly wrong about why he would not save himself. In one sense, he certainly could have saved himself, but 
He was committed not to save himself, but to save everyone who believes in him. So had he come down from the cross, they said, we'll believe on you if you, if you come down from the cross. Had he come down from the cross, their faith would have been pointless because they would still be in their sins. So he had to remain on the cross so that he could save all who put their trust in, not only in him, but in what he was doing on that cross. The leaders go on in verse 43, and they're nearly quoting Psalm 22 at this point. The Jewish leader said, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Psalm 22, 8 says, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Jesus, again, is walking that path that his forefather had walked. But again, he's doing it to an extreme degree. Now, unbeknownst to these leaders, their very words are demonstrating that. They don't realize that they're quoting Psalm 22 at that moment. But they're saying the very things God was picturing through David, that this would happen to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who fulfills David's office as king. So they, didn't, they weren't aware of the fact that they're questioning that God desired Jesus, that he was the son. God the Father had already declared that publicly. Matthew records it two times, at Jesus' baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration. Both times, the Father himself announced, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew then points out in verse 44 that even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him. Again, these insurrectionists that are being crucified, they're experiencing the same suffering, and even they turned on Jesus and mocked him. Now, Luke says some other things about the, one of these insurrectionists, but Matthew wants to point out that at this point, everyone is mocking Jesus. So this is utter, complete human rejection, even while he's suffering. That was followed, though, by an even more significant rejection. We see that with the Son of God's death, verses 45 through 50. Now, very often, at the end of someone's life, the truth comes out. I I read some deathbed confessions, and they ranged from a husband admitting that he shrunk his wife's clothes at the end of his life to another one confessing that he killed his twin brother so that while he was in Vietnam, so that he'd come back and steal his identity. That's a pretty big confession at the end of your life. One woman admitted that to her daughter, in her dying moments, that she was not actually her mother. She was actually her grandmother. That her, this, this girl's oldest sister had actually had this child at a, when she was too young to raise it, and so this woman had raised her as her own. The truth comes out in the end. I mean, people feel pressure. They feel guilt over hiding the truth feel bad for misleading people and they want to just get it off their chest at the end of their life. Or, or in some cases, maybe they don't want to tell the truth, but they can't. They can't keep up the charade at the end of their life. And, and that's something that should make an unbeliever very unsettled about the way that Jesus died. Jesus is being tortured. I mean, if anything is going to draw out the truth, if anything is going to make you slip up, That's got to be it. And yet Jesus never faltered. He's true to the end. There's no final confession from the cross. 
other than the truth about himself. Now that stands in stark contrast to what was happening, what the Father was communicating. First of all, this is a crucifixion. This is, this is a person who's dying on a wooden pole. And according to the law that God had revealed, according to Deuteronomy 21-23, if a, if a man was killed on a wooden pole or if they were killed and placed on a wooden pole, it would communicate that God had punished them, that they were cursed by God. It's a promise from God that he would not allow that to happen in Israel unless it was true. On top of that, verse 45 describes darkness. So verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And don't let the Roman way of telling time confuse you or fool you. The sixth hour, by their calculation, is what we would call noon. The ninth hour was 3 p.m. So during the brightest time of day, there is an unnatural darkness. It wasn't an eclipse. You know that because this is during Passover, which is full moon. Eclipses do not happen during the full moon. There is no natural explanation for this darkness. God, back in Exodus, sent darkness on the Egyptians in judgment. And, and promised throughout the Old Testament that darkness, it, it accompanies his judgment. So what this darkness is, it's an expression of God's wrath. He's saying, Jesus is being punished. So, verse 46 then gives us Jesus' response to this. In the dark, Jesus cries out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. Matthew then transliterates that for us, but then he translates it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which again is a quote from Psalm 22. It's the first line in that psalm. In Psalm 22, David was disoriented. See, David knew that God had made this commitment to him as king. He had committed to be his father, he says. He had this promise of protection from God. He knew in this case, this thing that he's describing about in Psalm 22, that he was innocent, that his enemies were attacking him, that they were wrong. And so, according to God's promises, he should be delivered, so he's disoriented. Why isn't God delivering him? But he cries out in faith to his God. The the way that David describes him as my God, my God, is pointing out the relationship that he had to God. So he's crying out in faith. And David believed That because he was innocent, because he was righteous in this case, that that God would vindicate him, that he would rescue him from death. Well, David's life, again, is a picture of what Jesus was going to go through. But like I said before, this is Jesus fulfilling it to the nth degree. So when God did vindicate Jesus, it wasn't by rescuing him from death before he died. It would be by rescuing him from death after he died. Now, Ken and I, we, we talked about this passage in Israel, and we disagreed about it. <laughs> and, uh, but we were talking about what was going on in Jesus' mind as he said these words, which we can't be certain of what was going on in Jesus' mind. Matthew doesn't even help us out there. But the more I've thought about it, the more I could see what Ken was talking about. See, David is disoriented in Psalm 22. And if this is the fulfillment of that, then Jesus, he is experiencing disorientation too. He he is 
dealing with what's going on and what he knew about his father. And he is struggling in this moment, in his humanness, he is expressing genuine struggle. But he's also very deliberate in how he does it. He's connecting this to Psalm 22. So even as Jesus says this, he is disoriented, he is confused, but he expresses, just as David did, faith in God. So I don't think that when he says, my God, he's pointing to a separation there. He's quoting David. And in fact, I think in that case, he's actually pointing to this relationship that he did have. But he is talking about the father's abandonment. He'd been forsaken, he says. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus in his divinity, his divinity was separated from the father. This is things that we can't fully understand. But understand everything from the very beginning of his arrest was the father handing him over to his enemies. It's just like Joseph told his brothers. Here in this case, Judas had meant his handing Jesus over to the Jewish leaders for evil. He was trying to get something good out of the situation. But God had meant it for good. Jewish leaders, they had meant they're handing Jesus over to Pilate for evil. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. But God had meant it for good. And then Pilate had meant his handing Jesus over for crucifixion for evil. He just wanted to get this mess out of his way. He didn't want to start a riot. He didn't care about Jesus. But God had meant that very thing for good. It's just as Paul told the Christians in Rome, God did not spare his own son, but handed him over for us all. So this cry of dereliction, as it's called, is an expression from Jesus that says he is innocent, he is righteous. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's pointing to this disconnect. There is no obvious reason why the father shouldn't rescue him. He's done nothing wrong. So when he asks why, he's pointing out that he is innocent. There's no surprising confession at the end. No surprising admission. Up to the very end, he's confessing the truth that he has done nothing wrong. And even though the father has every reason to rescue him from this horrible treatment, he's shockingly not delivering his son. So what Jesus is really pointing to is his substitutionary Death on behalf of everyone who believes in him. That he is not dying for his own sins. He is not cursed for his own sins. He is taking on the curse for the sake of others. For the sake of everyone who will believe in him. So do you believe he did that for you? Do you believe that you're a sinner in need of what Jesus accomplished, that forgiveness? Do you catch a glimpse of this Loving, righteous man being treated this way, dying in this extremely significant way. Do you believe that he did that for you? I can't tell you how much I I want you to believe that. Now, that's not what the bystanders see. They listen to Jesus on the cross. And they misunderstand what he says. That's why Matthew includes the Aramaic. Because they hear the Aramaic for my God, Eli. And they 
think he's calling for Eliyahu, Elijah. Sounded really similar. That was the prophet. If you remember the story, Elijah didn't die in an ordinary way. He didn't really seem to taste death. He was taken to heaven. And in Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, God said, I'm going to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So as these bystanders hear Jesus, they think he's, he's asking for Elijah to come and rescue him. And one of these bystanders, they decided to give Jesus something to drink, seemingly to revive him. And the reason was given by the crowd in verse 49. The first word in verse 49 doesn't need to be translated, but it could simply be translated and. And actually the word wait is unnecessary. Matthew in the verb, the way that the verb is formed, shows that these two things are happening all at once. This person is going to give Jesus a drink while the people are saying, wait, well, not wait, but let's see what happens. See what he does. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. So what this person is doing is they're giving Jesus this sour wine as a stimulant. They're trying to get him to to not die yet. They want to see if Elijah will come. Maybe, Maybe he'll come. Now, that's not what Jesus is saying. Never at any point is Jesus asking to be rescued from the cross because he knew that this was the Father's will. Even in his state of confusion, he understood that that was his Father's will. And even these final acts are demonstrating that this has been the plan. Because again, Psalm 69, 21 describes for David, they gave me gall for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Even in this moment, this is demonstrating that it's exactly what God had planned. And Jesus demonstrates in this moment that he is still in control of himself. They cannot take his life from him. He gives it freely. So verse 50 says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is how the Son of God dies. Now, let's look at the response to that death in verses 20, or 51 through 54. Matthew points out the significance of what is going to happen with the words, and behold. He's given an exclamation point there. And he points to something or these events that that reveal both God's judgment and his salvation. So first of all, Matthew tells us, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The form of the verb shows that Matthew is suggesting God did this. And the direction of the tear points to the same thing. It's from top to bottom. There were two main curtains in the temple. There was the curtain at the very opening that kept everyone out except the priests. And then there was a curtain inside the temple that separated everyone except for one person from this inner compartment called the Holy of Holies. The the high priest and only the high priest could go in and only one time a year could go past that curtain. There was a separation there. So I think it's that curtain that Matthew's referring to here. That was the curtain that's emphasized in the Old Testament would say the curtain of the temple, most of the, most of the time it was referring to that inner temple or the inner, inner curtain. So this curtain was 60 feet high. 
So you can understand if it was torn from top to bottom, what a statement that would be of who had actually torn it. So on the one hand, the father seems to be telling his people that because they've rejected their Messiah, they can no longer have access to him through this temple. It was judgment. But that's also true because as the author of Hebrews points out, Jesus had just established a new and better access to God. No longer would there be access to God through that curtain. There was a new access through a new curtain, the way that Hebrews puts it, through Jesus' flesh. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus, now and forever. Not only was that curtain split in two, but there's an earthquake that split rocks in two. God the Father, he had judged his son on the cross, but not because his son was guilty. So even now, as, as he responds to what is the rejection and execution of his innocent son, he responds with statements that point to judgment. Earthquake that points to the judgment on his people for doing that. But earthquakes are also found at apocalyptic events. You see it throughout the Old Testament. See it in the New Testament as well. So this earthquake points to the apocalyptic event that had occurred. This is an end time, end of the world event. Jesus had just experienced the day of the Lord for everyone who believes in him. So Jesus had ushered in a new age by his death even though it overlaps with this old age. On top of that, verse 52 says, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Jesus' death is so significant that faithful Israelites came back to life when he died. Jesus' death sent shockwaves through the grave. And these people came back to life. And that shows the significance of his death of what he'd accomplished. Because of what Jesus accomplished, because Jesus died, people will be restored to God. Now, as best I can understand it, uh, these are not people from the Old Testament times. It seems to me that these are people who were faithful Israelites and they had died more recently. And verse 53 is a little hard to sort out, but it seems like the phrase after his resurrection should go with what follows. So they waited until after the resurrection to make their appearance, to go into the holy city, to Jerusalem, to appear to many people. Maybe they saw in the resurrection the signal that now was the time to reveal themselves. So what Matthew is doing, though, in, in all this list, he's pointing out ways that God the Father is responding to his son's death. He's re- He's showing us that this is the most important, most significant death of all time. So if there really is a God who created everything and who actually is presently keeping everything in existence, which we believe there is, this is exactly what we'd expect to happen at the most significant death of all time. We'd expect God to do this. We'd expect climactic things to happen like the curtain splitting in two, an earthquake, rocks splitting in two, tombs opening, people coming back to life. Death and resurrection of Jesus that follows are the most important events in history. And the God who's in charge of history made sure that we could see that. Now, 
If you look in verse 54, you can see how the centurion and the soldiers respond to what's happening. They've been watching. They've been sitting there. Matthew told us they were keeping watch. Now remember that these are the soldiers who were part of the battalion who mocked and mistreated Jesus. They're not neutral observers. They don't care about Jesus. They don't think anything significant about Jesus. They crammed a thorny crown on his head. They beat him repeatedly with a stick. They're, they're not positive towards Jesus, but they've been watching this whole thing. They've been taking it in. They've seen his crucifixion. They've seen the way that Jesus responded to it. Now they've seen his death. They saw the darkness occurring. They, they now have seen an earthquake, felt an earthquake, and watched rocks split apart. And all of this is happening right as this man dies. So verse 54 says, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Now that's not quite what Peter says in chapter 16, but it is much more like what the disciples say in chapter 14. In fact, it's, it's nearly identical to their response. When they saw Jesus walking on the water in this stormy, in the middle of a stormy lake, their response was to say in verse 33 of that chapter, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, these soldiers are pagans. So we don't know if their conception of things is based on their Greek and Roman myths of gods and demigods, but what Matthew is doing is pointing out he's, he is responding to the mocking that's occurred previously where they say, if you are the Son of God. In the mouths of these soldiers, Matthew's responding, yes. Jesus really is the Son of God. His father has just made it very clear that that's true. And even pagan soldiers could recognize it. Now the question is, how should we respond to this crucifixion and death? I think Barabbas points us in the right direction, not the Barabbas of actual history, but the fictional version of him in a book called The Shadow of the Galilean, which Michael Wilkins quoted in his commentary. And in this story, Barabbas is writing a letter at this point to a Christian named Andreas. He's thanking him, and as he does, he kind of describes the events that have occurred in his life during this crucifixion, and he writes, I barely escaped death. The price was high. Another died in my place. Two of my friends were crucified with him. Since then, I've been asking myself, why the others? Why Jesus? Why not me? Now I'm indissolubly bound up with him. I keep thinking what that means for me. If he has died in my place, then I am obliged to live for him. You know, for everyone who knows that Jesus died in our place, that's exactly how we're supposed to respond. As we witness this morning what he's done for us, this is how we respond. We're obliged to live for him. That's exactly why he died. That's what Paul says. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians to these Corinthian believers that Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So why would a woman be willing to entrust her infant child to her mother and her family? Why would she do that willingly simply 
to continually be identified with Jesus? Why would she believe that her loyalty to Jesus was more important than her loyalty even to her son or her family? Because of the impact of Jesus' death on her life. It wasn't just an emotional response for her. Because in that kind of a situation that she was facing, emotional responses will not keep you committed to Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit had revealed to Perpetua through this this good news about Jesus that he had suffered that crucifixion and died for her salvation. And that that was more important, more significant than anything else to her. You might wonder what you would do if you were standing on that platform before a Roman governor. And if you had, and if all you had to do to escape was to simply pray a fake prayer and, you know, light something, burn something. You might wonder if you wouldn't just do it. I mean, you could always say, I didn't mean it. You could always say, God will forgive me. And if you worry that that's what you would do, because it's hard enough to live for Jesus, let alone die for him. If if you're worried about how you would respond to a situation like that, we just encourage you to link to think long and hard and to continually think about what jesus has done for you what jesus did up on that cross i can't help but think of stuart townend's words in his song how deep the father's love he says behold the man upon a cross my sin upon his shoulders Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Life that Jesus brought us by his death is worth preserving. And in fact, it's the only life worth preserving. And as Jesus put it, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, the true life, the eternal life that matters. Or in the words made famous by Jim Elliott, the well-known missionary martyr of the the 20th century, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Join me in prayer. Jesus, we, we can't even put into words the thanks that we have and really the awe that we have for what you did for us. There are no words that would be sufficient to say thank you. Really, the only way that we can even start to show you how we understand just how amazing your death for us was is to live the rest of our lives for you. Instead of trying to preserve our life, if it's ever threatened 
because of our identity with you, that we would recognize that's not the, that's not the life we want to hang on to. You and the life that you provide is the life we want to hang on to. We know that we're weak. We know that we're not like you. We're not strong. We're not able to to demonstrate this perfect righteousness that you demonstrate all the way up to the end. And yet what you've done and what you promised for us is that by what you've done, You'll transform us. You will give the Holy Spirit to us to enable us to begin to change, to begin to become like you. So we ask, based on what you've accomplished for us, based on the strength of the same Spirit that raised you from the dead, we ask that you would strengthen our hearts to follow you as you've called us to. To deny ourselves. Not to deny you, but to deny ourselves. To take up our cross, to follow you to the very end. We know that's not something we can do in our strength. We know that we in our strength would be faithless, so we ask for your strength. We ask in our weakness that your strength would be made visible to others. If you ever call us to be in that same position that Perpetua was in, that by your grace, by your strength, we, we would stand firm. But I, I pray that even in lesser circumstances, when, when we're given the option to either be true to you, be true to what you've called us to, be true to this reality of life with God, how important that is. In the moment that that's called into question, the moment where we're, we're encouraged to equivocate, when we're encouraged to give in and act like we don't know you, that we'd remember what you've done for us. By your Spirit, we would be strengthened to be loyal to you rather than trying to create our, our best situation for ourselves. Pray that we would do that, not so that we look good even, but so that others can see the truth about you. That others would even be called into question to wonder, why is this person doing this? Why are they remaining loyal to Jesus like this? That you would even use that in their lives so that they would turn from their sin and trust in your son. Pray that you would, in, even in this room, Spirit, we ask that you would cause them to pay attention to this good news. Anyone who doesn't know the truth about Jesus. That you would enable them to hear this good news and that they would respond to it. We thank you for the promise that you will do that very thing. Amen.